Hi, this is Jackie, and today I'm talking with Rob Dixon about the 10 attributes that create flourishing relationships between men and women. Now, Rob is speaking specifically to mix gender relationships in ministry and the workplace, but I got to tell you, I highlighted some things for Steve, and I plan to discuss them when he gets home from Africa. Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, where we're having off-the-record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of the Marcella Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women. At work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're going to be asking hard questions, dealing with real issues, and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are going to put words to your female experience. They're going to ennoble you as Jesus intended and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view. Welcome back. So a little bit about Rob. He is an Associate Regional Ministry Director with InterVarsity, a Senior Fellow for Gender Partnership with the InterVarsity Institute. He's an Adjunct Professor at Fresno Pacific University and Fuller Theological Seminary and provides training on flourishing mixed gender ministry partnerships for numerous organizations around the country. And Rob recently wrote a book, which is what I want to talk to him about today, called Together in Ministry. And I got to tell you, we got a lot to get through, a lot to talk about. So it's going to be a little longer than your nor- than our normal podcast, and I'm going to invite you to stay with us. Let's welcome Rob. Well, welcome, Rob. It's nice to have you back on the podcast. I, I looked, I think we talked um, almost a little over a year ago about allyship. So I'm um, glad to have you back. Yeah, thanks for having me. That was fun to be on then, fun to be back now. Okay, so I read your book. As I've mentioned before, I love it. So your book is a byproduct of, of a research project that you did. Is that, is that correct? That's right. Yeah, four-year a doctorate in intercultural studies through Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena. And so um, I want to emphasize that because um, this is not just your uh, opinion. This is research. This is what you have discovered upon doing extensive research. And as I, I've read your book, I, I have to say it's so easy to read. It is extremely practical. Um, its context is ministry, and that is going to benefit a lot of my listeners because we have a lot of women who minister out there that listen to this podcast. And, and when I say women who minister, that might be people who get paid or not paid, have a position title, doesn't, doesn't matter. And so this is really going to benefit them. And then there's guys that listen on too, that this is really going to be helpful for. But I also think this works in the workplace where there's any mixed gender, right? But I don't know if you've thought about this for your book, but I highlighted a lot of stuff for Steve and I to have a conversation about when he gets home from Africa. Like there's some really healthy tools in here for marriage. Sure. Yeah. Well, that's good. Uh, Steve, Hang in there with those conversations. Yeah, no. <laughs> I'm going to have to have yep. some wine. <laughs> yeah. Particularly like active listening. I highlighted that a couple of times. Very, very good stuff. So anyway, let me summarize for our listeners a little bit. And if I miss anything, and of course I won't get it all, but you know, if there's something you want to add, please do. But sure. basically you start your book by laying it on a foundation um, around this idea of flourishing partnerships that are God's original design as seen in Genesis, and then reinstituted through Jesus, not only by how he engaged women, but also through, you know, the theological implications of his work on the cross. And in your research, what you discovered were these 12 attributes um, that cultivate flourishing partnerships. And when you talk about flourishing partnerships, what you mean is two things are true. People experience personal satisfaction and missional effectiveness. And then you take these 10 attributes and you group them into three different groups, the inner life, community culture, and intentional practices. And then each chapter of your book goes into much detail about each specific attribute, what it looks like, how it looks, where it shows up in scripture, its benefits, its barriers, and then how we could take some steps to develop it. It's just really, really practical. So, Love it. Within um, the first circle, I hope I did a really good job summarizing. <laughs> Jack, people should still buy the book, but that was a great summation. Right? 
They absolutely should. There's a lot of detail in here. Okay, so within the inner life, the first circle, you describe this attribute that you call the authentic learner posture. What exactly is that? Yeah, I'll borrow from a quote from someone in the research process who told me that uh, they describe the learner's posture as the ability to describe someone else's reality. And I just, I love that, that idea that you could get to the point in your ministry partnership where you can accurately and rightly describe someone else's reality. That means you've done the work to walk in their shoes or that's a metaphor we use, right? Or, or to, to walk, you know, to, to understand their world. You've asked questions, you've observed, you've, um, you've just been a good partner in that way. Right. And so I think if we, the research demonstrated that if people can exhibit that learner's posture, um, those partnerships are going to be more likely to be to, to thrive. See, now this is one of those attributes that I actually think would be very helpful for marriage partners to actually think about and walk through. And I think we've learned this before, or hopefully many of us have learned it, but we forget. So I think it's actually a good reminder for marriage. So this is one of those attributes that is highlighted for Steve <laughs> for when he gets back from Africa. <laughs> so you list... Um, multiple barriers, I think five, um, to this, to the development of this particular attribute. And I'd love for you to speak to two of them. Um, one that you said as a barrier, one barrier you said is busyness. And I have seen that particularly in the church world. And then the other is these taboo topics and, Uh and how they impede becoming an authentic learn learner, taking the authentic learner posture. So talk a little bit about those two. Yeah. Yeah, well, the busiest one, I think, just speaks to, you know, we live in a society and a culture where it's just go, go, go all the time. And I think um, often I find myself having these short little conversations with people that I work with as opposed to how are you? You know, what's going on in your world, right? Tell me, tell me what you're struggling with. Tell me what's great in your life, right? Those conversations feel few and far between. And so I think... Uh, what I'm trying to identify here is that's that's a barrier for us that we need to get to the place where we can have, you know, legitimate, authentic conversations that are kind of unhurried and that offer us an opportunity to walk in our partner's shoes. I'll give you a quick example. I was on the phone on Zoom the other day with um, one of my ministry partners. Her name's Lila. She makes a lot of appearances in the book. But Lila and I were talking about we have this long agenda, Jackie. I mean, it was like eight things we needed to talk about on the Zoom call. And it would have been really easy just to jump in from, you know, the get-go and say, here's, let's deal with number one, two, three, and so on. Um, and that's a temptation. It's more efficient, makes sense. But I, I think the choice that, you know, Lila and I made just intuitively was, how are you doing? You know, how's your, how are your kids? Uh, what's happening in your world? How was Thanksgiving? Right. So all of those kinds of things. And I, I think that, that sort of resisting that pull towards agenda and busyness as the real challenge for us. So that's the first one. The second one you mentioned taboo topics. I just think we have, and this is a, a bit of a theme in the book that there are, a, there's a set of topics around sexuality, around, you know, men and women as friends, ministry partners that the church writ large has kind of decided are off limits or, it's best if we don't talk about them, kind of the prevailing wind mm-hmm. of, of culture. And I think the, the, the theory is if we don't talk about them, then uh, they won't blow up, won't become big issues in our congregations. But the reality is all of these things are happening, whether or not we're talking about them. And if we don't create <laughs> safe, well-curated spaces to talk about it, then um, it just blows up at some point, right? Or people go somewhere else where they can have the conversations that they want to have. And I think if I had my magic wand, Jackie, and can change something, it would be let's, let's be leaders in the church of uh, creating safe spaces to have conversations about things that really matter. So that's kind of the taboo topics one. I think we, we have this prevailing idea that it's off limits to talk about certain things in the church. Yeah. And I agree with that wholeheartedly. When we get to some of the other attributes I've when I was working at a church, one of the things that we had to talk about was can men and women be friends? And what about the issue of sex, right? Like the fear mm-hmm. issue of, of moral failure. We had to talk about it if we were going to actually be able to flourish together as brothers and sisters serving alongside each other. And, and yeah. I don't think prior to my being there, anybody had 
ever brought it up, but I was like, oh no, we got to talk about this. Cause I've got things I got to do and I can't do what I need to do in the name of Jesus. Yes. <laughs> if this keeps, you know, underneath the rug. So you're exactly right. And to busyness, I think, you know, you are so right. Like if we don't, cause, cause actually taking time to ask questions and listen means mm-hmm. I need to not be tired or hurried. Yeah. You know, it means I I need to like actually not be ramming through things. It means I need to not be task oriented at all times. And that takes energy. Yeah. And do you think, and this is, this is a very generalized stereotypic question, but do you think men or women are socialized better to actually take an authentic learner's posture? Oh, I think generally speaking, women are socialized to have a value for that, that men don't, um, for sure. But I, yeah, I don't think I, but that shouldn't be an excuse that men off the hook from doing that work. I mean, the reason why it's in the inner life domain, that first circle for me, Jackie, is because I think it's something that we have to cultivate from within. And so I think, um, this sort of, you know, curiosity about someone else's experience, um, that's an important thing to work on. And so I, I would encourage men out there for whom this feels like offhanded. I would, I would encourage men to really press into that, you know, and, and try to cultivate and stoke that, that healthy curiosity about someone else's world. Yeah. It actually builds beautiful relationships in marriage, in work with children, yep. with friends, right? Like, I mean, it's, it's a lifelong skill set, actually, but all right. right. We, um, I, I even think I want to suggest not that you have, Nothing to do right now, but I actually think it'd be great. Next book for you to write is got to be like, how do particularly women um, actually bring these issues up in a very male-dominated space, right? So, mm. so a lot of these things need to be curated by the leaders, right? But a lot of the leaders are male and they're not noticing. And so, how do women right. bring them up and say, "Hey, if we're going to have flourishing relationships, how do we, you know, how does how does the underdog, if you will?" Bring it up yeah. without sounding like, you know, a nag is, is really the next book for you to write, just so you know. Okay, so anyway. <laughs> okay, accepted. Thanks, Jackie. Sure, anytime I can put more work on your plate. Um, yep. Another attribute in the inner life was something I think is really important um, is called, you call it shared theological conviction. And this one really hit me because I have walked with women um, who are in churches where they are by... Verbally, they say they are fully inclusive. Women can basically do everything and anything, but their practice doesn't reflect their doctrine. And this is particularly hard on women who minister in those kinds of settings, because if a woman ministers in, let's say, a complementarian setting where she knows there are limitations, then she doesn't actually have a lot of hope that things are going to change, nor does she try to always change it. But if you're in a, in yep. a situation where you're told that you can do all these things, but the actual practice isn't meeting it, you can lose hope and get discouraged and very disillusioned. So I think some people listening, and I know because I just met with them last week, when they hear you talk about this shared theological conviction are going to go, oh, that's why we keep bumping into this wall in our church. So tell us what that is. Yeah, so three, um, three findings in the research that fit under this category. So the first one is um, that women and men, if they're going to partner together well, if that's going to be a healthy, flourishing place, they need to be on the same theological page, which I think intuitively makes sense, right? It would be really difficult to partner with someone that had a restrictive view, let's say, of women in leadership if you have an expansive view of women in leadership. That just doesn't mesh, right? So same page theologically. The second finding was that that page is open to um, a theology that supports the full participation of women in the work. So one term that gets used for that theological position is egalitarian, right? And so that's sort of the, that came out in the research. If we have an egalitarian understanding of the scriptures and we share that together, then we can move on some of the other things in the model. I mean, I think of the theological, shared theological conviction attribute as in some ways foundational, right? So if we're going to talk later on about, you know, freely sharing power, well, that's going to rest atop a foundation that's egalitarian in nature, right? In terms of the Mm -hmm. theology. Mm -hmm. So that's the second thing. And then the third thing that came out in the research was the language of conviction. And, uh, and I, I think for me, that term marries um, belief with 
and you know, like the intention to act on it. It's not just like a, an intellectual assent or agreement. It's not just like a belief. It's something deeper than that. Um, I remember one woman I was interviewing said to me that she can only partner with a man if she can tell, and here's the language she used, if she can tell that he's down with the cause is the language <laughs> she used. You I know, love which, it. <laughs> right, right. Which I, I pushed her a little bit on that, and she said, well, that just means he's got some deeds done. You know, he's really worked on this. He's, he's done his homework, and his actions reflect that sort of belief. And so that's where the word conviction comes in. So those three things, right? Same page theologically, that page is egalitarian, and then there's conviction around that. So this is where I see the, the, um, the, the rub for a lot of women that I walk with who are in church settings, faith-based settings, is that um, it's the conviction. Um, so uh-huh. there's a verbal affirmation. There's even probably a heart intent, but the action isn't being, um, the muscle isn't being put to it. You know, there isn't yep. action put to it. And um, I love, you talk about several barriers of why that is. And um, two in particular I want to focus on because I think they're, probably the largest, I think busyness is also one, but, but you focused on, um, several of them, but one is misogynism and the other is that there will be blowback pushback if you put Mm -hmm. action to, uh, this particular belief. So share a little bit about that. Sure. Well, yeah. So yeah, (laughs) I think uh, there's there's a, (laughs) right, right. That's the process. That's the challenge, Jackie. <laughs> I'm so, just tell, there's a story in the book I tell where you know I was in the season of talking a lot about women in leadership theology with um, with a bunch of intervarsity students in my community, and it was just every day it was a different conversation with a different student because they were receiving from a church in town a complementarian method a message, and it was really compelling for them, and they were just trying to sort all that out. I mean, rightly so, they were confused because their experience working with us was egalitarian. And then they had this sort of complementarian teaching in the church and like, help me, Rob, help me figure this out. And so I was having all these conversations and, and then one day I went in to meet with a student and this student wasn't alone. And the pastor, the lay pastor from that church was sitting there with him. And um, immediately I walked in the door and I thought, this is going to be tough, uh, brutal. Mm -hmm. Indeed, it was, and he proceeded to just spend an hour calling me a false teacher and mm-hmm. uh, and worse because I was allowing women to speak, you know, to preach in our community and, and such. And so, I think that that experience of that was a robust pushback experience, and I've had others, but that one really galvanized to go from a place of, yeah, this is an important issue, to a place of conviction for me. Uh, you know, in a, in, a, in a deep way, like in a personal way. So I think going into that meeting, I would have said, this is important. We should be talking about that. I've been doing that for weeks. Coming out of that meeting, I was like, oh, let's do this. You know, let's have some conversations. Let's really work on this. And I think that um, it took me a while to recover from that experience. But the the fruit of it was this place of conviction and a desire to learn more theologically and then to pair that learning with action in terms of our structures and our culture and how we operated in our community. I hope that makes sense. Absolutely. And, and there, in other words, there's a price to pay if you put action, if you put muscle to this belief of female inclusiveness. Mm-hmm. For, for many faith communities, if you put action to it, it's one thing to say it, nobody really, right. kind of, it's a little unclear for everybody what's really happening. But once you put muscle to it and you start implementing that belief, you, you're going to find that there's blowback, there's pushback, there's price to pay. Yeah. And so a lot, yeah, of, a lot of people pull back because they don't want to lose donors. They don't want to lose powerful, influential people in their ministry, you know? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah there's, a, you'll step on sacred cows. I mean, there's, yeah, there's lots of, uh, you'll, you'll run into some of those things. I think it's worth it, but it fits in the category for me of like count the costs, right? So if you're going to pursue a truly egalitarian community, one that aligns with your convictions, then um, you just need to anticipate that, I think, yeah. and be willing to steer into it. Yeah. And not everybody is willing to take the price, by the, to pay the price, by the way. I've, 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 had, I've had several men share with me um, that they have changed their position, but the cost to them isn't worth it to implement. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, right. um, so misogyny, like how does that play into this also? 
Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the barriers I think I talk about in particular is this is this um, uh, sort of complementarian position that I think is the default in a lot of churches. And so, in a lot of churches, women can't do you know x number of things. It sort of depends on the congregation. And I think for me that that fits into the category of marginalization, maybe misogyny, where it's it's uh, you are as a woman you are unable to fulfill your full calling if you want to uh, you're unable to use your full giftings if you if you want to do that too because there is this cap on women leading in the church and so um, so yeah I think how can we overturn that right how do we reimagine the theological landscape and then everything that goes with that and flows out of that theology so um, yeah that's a huge barrier for people I, I think I think for me, we're swimming upstream if we're trying to bring this change because so much of the current runs in a complementarian direction. That's, again, not to say we shouldn't push, because I think we definitely should. And I have the book to prove it, Jackie. But, but, it, <laughs> but, it, is, but it is a challenge for us, right? And um, it's going to require all the imagination, determination that we can muster. Yeah. And I think, I think a lot of it is that our culture has been patriarchal for centuries, and so our churches have sat in that, and out of that comes this theology called complementarianism, if you will. It's it patriarchal-based, and it's it's been around for a very long time. So it's the default. You're exactly right. It's the default. And what we're doing is we're revisiting Scripture and saying, hey, wait a minute. We actually think flourishing partnership was God's original design, and we see it in Jesus also. So let's let's bring that back. Let's bring that vision of God's back. And that and yeah. we are swimming upstream. We are swimming yep. upstream, and lots of women are feeling that. I feel like I've talked to about 30 different women in ministry in the last three weeks that are really in this very situation we're talking about where they love their work, they feel fully called by Jesus to serve in vocational ministry, and they're in verbally egalitarian or fairly affirming of women, and yet there's all kinds of limits and you know restrictions and glass ceilings for them. And they're discouraged. And so what what would you say to them? I mean, like, I'm always having to, like, cheerlead them and kind of discern, do you stay? Do you go? I mean, what do you say to women like that? Yeah, I, I mean, the first thing I say is just a big, hearty, I'm so sorry. That's your experience, right? Um, I, I mean, I had a similar conversation with a woman that I really respect who got into that same the situation you're describing, Jackie, a bait and switch, right? Where it's like, come work with us. Uh, be a pastor, then all the doors closed seemingly once she got into the, into the role. And, um, you know, at this point, her journey is um, recovery. It's like a, it's like a healing journey that she's got to go now. It's so, so painful and tragic for me. So I think the first thing I'd say is just, I'm so sorry. That's the road that's ahead for you. And how can I help you uh, recover? Yeah. Right. I think, in terms of, you know, if women are in that place, sometimes I get this question, like, how long do I stay, right? If I'm I in this too. place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's hard because I think every situation is different, but but maybe there's sort of two general um, pathways that I've experienced. So one would be uh, women who feel called, and it, I think it is, that's the right word for it. It's a calling to stay, to be prophetic, to try to change the system. And when I hear a woman talk like that and say, that's, that's what I feel led to do. My question as someone who really wants to be an ally to women is like, well, how can I help you? <laughs> right? How right, can I, right, right. What, do you, what do you need? How can I come alongside you? How can I keep this healthy for you? Because it's going to be hard. And what can I do to support? And the other, so the, that's one pathway. The other pathway though is more, this is chewing me up. It's like hitting my head against a wall repeatedly. And um, this isn't healthy for me. And so my Again, it's a would-be ally. My question is, how can I walk with you off of out of this context and into one that's going to fit you better? Yep. Right. And yep. so, those are kind of the two generalized pathways. Maybe it's too reductionistic, but those are the two I see often. Yeah. No, the, I would agree with that one hundred percent. I was going to say I've gotten asked that a bazillion times, and I pretty much go right where you just went. You know, some people are called to stay, and and they have a prophetic voice, and they can take the beating a little bit easier quite frankly, they don't yeah. love it, but they can take it, yeah. you know? And then there's others yeah. that they're dying. Well, yeah. that isn't, that isn't, they're unhealthy because of it, right? Then it is, how right. do I help you out of here? And how do I yeah. lament with you? And how do I get you to the right place um, to, to where you can actually recognize that you're grieving and need to lament and need time to heal? 
you know, because I don't right. even think they realize that's what's what's needed sometimes. So I, I agree with you 100%. I think that's exactly what, what we need to offer to these women. So, um, okay, so another attribute you discussed is a, an awareness of gender brokenness, which you say refers to the areas of struggle in our lives that stem from our experiences as women and men. And on page four of your, 54 of your book, you share some examples that men gave um, that they used to describe their gendered brokenness. What, what did they say? How did they describe it? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's, um, for me, there's a little bit of the category of things I would have anticipated them saying. So things like uh, dealing with lust, um, pornography, um, the, my sort of inability to not objectify women around me, right? There's sort of those things that I might have guessed men would say. And then there was like a category, they talked about like bias, you know, how I think about women, what I assume about women. Um, and, and the, the point, it would be that when men and when women are aware of some of that stuff under the surface, then they can start to move towards wholeness and healing. And as that happens, uh, they're more likely, I think, to be a part of a partnership where there's health and flourishing, right? So those would be some of the examples from the, the, the men's side of it anyway. So this, this, again, makes me think we're talking about, you know, um, inner life work right? Which takes yeah. time, yeah. energy, focus, intentionality, courage. Um, <clears throat> I spent a lot of time helping women think through uh, their internal barriers um, pertaining to their gender, to pertaining to gender brokenness. Um, mm -hmm. Do you think men get that same kind of teaching, that same kind of, so I help give words to women. Oh, this is what you might be experiencing. And they're like, oh, that's it. You know, um, do you think yeah. men get help in understanding or even are aware of this idea of gender brokenness? Well, it's tough to generalize. I mean, I think I would say that I've seen examples where this is happening and it's really good, both in my context and other contexts where men are doing that inner work, where there's a communal reality to their experience, where they're not just sort of addressing symptoms, but actually the root causes of their brokenness and moving towards health and healing and wholeness. And so I've seen that. I know it's possible, Jackie. At the same time, I think I'd say we just need more of that. Um, and when I think about like the, yeah, I think you used the word like internal barriers. I, I think there are those for men. Like, for example, I, I just have this knee jerk, you know, like reaction to being weak. Like I, I, I can't present as weak as I think I've just been, I've been, uh, you know, mentored by culture wherever to like not show weakness, not ask for help. And I think that's a real, real barrier for men in terms of moving towards healing and wholeness, right? So yeah. doing that inner work yeah. is going to require a willingness to put it out there and to be honest with who we are and to have others enter into that process and to be a part of seeking the Lord for healing. And so I just think we got to get through that. So anyway, so, I, so to answer your question, Yes, I see it happening, and I want it, I want to see it happen more. And I think if we can in our churches create well, um, you know, well curated spaces for that, we'll be on our way. I mean, I think that's a, a key agenda for the church. Well, and I think that's what you're doing, and I'm so appreciative to hear that it is happening because I spend so much time over work, you know, working in the the with women, and so I know that women are hearing it a lot because I know who's speaking into, you know, whose voices are out there. I'm not always as aware of what's going on in the corners with men, and are they also hearing it? So very encouraging to hear that. Um, I want to move on to the second circle or your second grouping, yeah. which we have the inner life, and then your second um, grouping is community culture. And you uh -huh. list um, an attribute there, and you mentioned it earlier, um, this vision for freely shared power. And first, I want to back up and just say, I thought you did a beautiful job of describing what power is and wasn't what it isn't. And you use some of Andy Crouch's work, which I love his work. Um, he wrote a fabulous book called yeah. Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power, just out of this world. It's, it's a, a conversation. Power is a conversation we don't have amongst us women very often. Christian women in particular, it's like, um, it's like something that we're not allowed to admit we have. I, I have mm -hmm. sat with very powerful women, influencers, leaders, and, and I will use the term of, well, how will you use your power? And they physically squirm. Um, mm -hmm. 
I'm not so sure mm. if that's true of, of, of women who aren't Christians, but Christian women aren't supposed to think of themselves as having yeah. power. Um, that's something that men have. So we yeah. need to do some work in that. Um, you talk about this shared power, and we see it in Scripture. We see it in Genesis 1, which you mentioned, and you mentioned Priscilla and Aquila. And I would also say somebody brought this up to me the other day that Paul and Priscilla, um, because Priscilla uh -huh. actually had the networks, and he could not come into those communities and break in very easily without someone laying the groundwork and actually inviting him in. And so everywhere yeah. she goes, he sends her first. And he, yep. she kind of lays the groundwork for him to come in and, and partner, right? She's partnering with him by paving the way for him. So we see this in scripture, this shared power. Um, so tell us a little bit about the benefits of shared power. And then what are the barriers? Yeah, but before I talk about benefits and barriers, I'll just affirm what you said earlier, which I think is um, really true. Power tends to be one of those taboo topics we mentioned earlier. Jackie, where we just don't talk about it. Maybe we just think like we're above that or. Right, right. Or, it's, it's, it's not very, it's not very godly. Yeah. The reality is there are power dynamics going on every day in churches around the world. And whether we talk about them or not, they're still happening. So, so it fits in the category for me of, well, then we should probably talk about them. We should ask the question, who has power? Why do they have power? Is this how we want power to be? distributed in our context? Can we redistribute power in some way? And, and I think if we did, became more practiced at that, we would be, we'd be better at creating an environment like I'm talking about where there is shared power. The other piece of it for me is um, I think we would do well to let Jesus <laughs> inform our perspectives on power, right? So maybe another way to put it would be... Good idea. I, <laughs> yeah. I think we need, um, our churches need a theology of power, right? Like, um, yeah, so we tend to, I think, so to your question about, about benefits, I mean, I think for one thing, if we could create shared power scenarios, then it allows us to dole out or to decide on who's doing what in the ministry by gifting. And, and it's not like one person needs to do everything, right? So we can say, what's Jackie good at? Preaching. Great. Let's have Jackie preach the sermon. What's Rob good at? Not preaching. Good. Let's not have a right? You know, you know what I mean? So it, it, it gives us the luxury, really, and I think that's what it would be, of like saying who's at the table and who's got the gifts we need to accomplish our mission, and let's be pragmatic about that and right. make decisions based on gifting, not on gender, right? So that's probably the biggest benefit for me. In terms of the downside, the barriers to shared power, Jackie, I mean, I think the biggest one it's kind of what I alluded to a second ago, which is that most churches have a view of power that um, I think they've, so I don't want to paint too broad of a brush. Many churches have embraced a view of power that really they borrow from the world, right? Where there's power zero sum, power is something to be protected. Um, uh, if you have power, keep it close. If you get more, keep it closer, you know? And, and I think the other piece of it would be that we have a model of leadership where power is largely sequestered in one person. Yep. We have this solitary leadership model. And um, I think that's, that's just a real limitation for us. If we could, again, if we could conceive of a shared leadership model, I think it would help us do our mission more effectively. Yeah. I agree um, quick, with that. Go yeah. Ahead. Quick story. I, I have a friend who, you know, he was a solitary pastor of a church and he had to do everything. You know, on any given day, he could be discipling a parishioner, preparing a Sunday message, or up in the attic fixing the, uh, you know, the, the air conditioning unit or whatever. I mean, he just had to do it all. And I think about, he left, ultimately, he left the pastorate in, in a little bit of a place of burnout. And I think how much of that was this paradigm that all power, he had to be involved in everything happening in that church. There was nothing that happened in that church that he hadn't influenced in some way. You know, and I think about that, like, is there, if he could delegate power, if he can share power with another person, um, I think that might help his longevity, I might have helped his longevity. Yeah. So, so yeah. I also say, I think the more we can interrogate our biases about power and the more we can let Jesus inform our theology of power, I think that will benefit us. Yeah, see, that's a whole nother book. Although I will say Andy Crouch does a really good job about talking about power because power is not negative, right? Power is right. flourishing and that he does a yep. beautiful job of that. But I agree with you. We need to like look at Jesus and say, what, how did he, cause he did the ethic of multiplication. 
not scarcity. Yeah. Right. He gave power yep. away and he didn't lose anything by giving it away. It multiplied. Right. And that's, yep. that's the basic premise. But so, yeah, I agree with you 100%. We need to reevaluate and we, I'm trying to talk to women a little bit more. Like I have them read Andy's book and we have some discussions mm -hmm. because I want them to think differently about power and what it looks like for a female to have yeah. power. Cause we have power also. Right. So how yep. is it? Let's look at it good, like power is good, and how will we use it for good is, is the real answer. Um, yep. So lots of work to be done on that. That's a whole other book. <laughs> See, there's more to be done, because I even think there's a question here of like, okay, so now that we know that, and most um, churches in conservative evangelical world in America, um, the power resides in male leadership, I think over 90%. And so how do women um, who are second, third, fourth, and fifth in, in line for power, how do they bring this up to the senior pastor or the male leadership? Hey, what about shared power? power? How, I mean, how do we even, and we don't have time to get into that today, but I think that's a really legitimate question because I know there's women out there going, great, but I can't even bring these, these attributes sure. up in my setting. Yeah. You know, we got yep. to get to a point where the people that they're the if you will, the underdogs or whatever, um, actually have an opportunity to, to bring these things to the table. Yeah. Yeah. Cause sometimes That's the leaders aren't open. Yeah. 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 Okay. So I, go ahead. Real, real, real quick on that. Sorry. Let me just say, I think it's a great point. Um, and I, I do think that question of like, how do you bring something like this up? If you're the person out of power right. <laughs> is a, is a, is a huge question. Maybe what I would just say for now, and we can save this for my third book or whatever we're on now in terms of books you're assigning me, there Jackie, to write. <laughs> but, but I do think, I think for me, what I would say to the women listening is, um, is use your gift. Go for it. Do amazing work in the, whatever the context in which you have to operate. Do something so wonderful and beautiful that people can't help but notice it and go, Something awesome is happening over there, whether it's the small group someone's leading or the, you know, the kids ministry someone's directing or the worship team someone's leading. There's something unique about what's happening there, something godly, something amazing. We need to learn about what's happening. And I think that might open doors to, to larger conversations about shared power and things like that. So maybe I'd say start there, right? There's also the prophetic, you know, hey, we need to talk about power on this team. That's another way to go. Um, but that's a challenging route to take, I think, unless you have a certain personality that can handle that. Right. So I think maybe for now, do good work where you are and, uh, and then, and then share that broadly. Yeah. And then I think also like ask the spirit for the courage. Are you the one that's yeah. to bring it up? And you know, some, yeah. you, you know how it works. The Holy spirit will make you vomit it up and you're like, no, no, I don't want to do it. And there's this push, 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 and you got to do it, you know? And if, and if the yeah. spirit is pushing you to do it, if the spirit says, yes, let's go. They'll provide opportunities for that to happen. Yep. So we can even pray for, hey, could you give us an opportunity? He might say no. He might say this isn't yours to do, but doesn't hurt to ask, you know? Yeah, that's right. All right, we're moving to chapter seven in your book where you talk right, about the it. value of holistic friendships. This is a big deal to me. Um, huh. I think it's key to having flourishing partnerships. Again, it's one of those taboo topics. Can men yep. and women actually be friends? I do a whole salon on this and I had to had to like wrestle with this question because I was a woman in ministry and my gifting put me in in positions where I was in mixed gender, you know, uh, workplaces. And so yep. I I had there was this whole thing about I don't know. Can can Jackie get in the car with me? Can we can we can we have conversations about personal things like her family and what's going on? And you know, like oh, it just got it got freaky and awkward and weird. And I thought, okay, yeah. we're gonna have to deal with this. Can can men and women actually be friends? And I love what your book points out is that actually um, in the church there is a different narrative other than danger romance, which is the only narrative I tend to hear mostly about. Um, and, in, and that is the sibling narrative in the New Testament. It's the most dominant narrative about brothers and sisters in the in in the faith community. And and you even mentioned several people in the book in your book um, that are male and that were male and females in the ministry who had holistic friendships. And I would add to them like Marcella Project. You know, Marcella Project that I run. Marcella was a it was a had a holistic friendship with Saint Jerome and 
and Melania the elder was was in relationship with Rufinius. And so it's biblical and it's in our early church. And so I would love for our listeners, because I think you've modeled this so well, would you share with us uh, about what a holistic friendship has looked like for you in your life? Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, this one, I think I shouldn't say this because it's like saying I have a favorite child or something, which I do not children. It's more like, but of the 10 attributes, this one might be my favorite. I mean, I wrote this chapter first um, because, because this one is such a part of my experience and it's something I cherish and will always cherish. I can't think of a part of my life, Jackie, where uh, a ministry partner, a woman who I work with in ministry who has become a friend hasn't sort of touched in some form or fashion. I mean, I just think it's, um, I'm just ever grateful for that. So, I mean, I think of someone like my friend Lila, I mentioned her earlier. She's all over the book as well. We've worked together for a long, long time. And, you know, we've done all kinds of ministry together. Like right now we're co-directing a conference together. We co-host a podcast together. We are talking about co consulting with an organization together. I mean, we just do good work together, but we've also become, you know, like great friends over the, over the years of working together. And, you know, to the point where, I mean, when I say holistic, what I mean is, you know, like, uh, you know, she, when my kids were little, we first started working together. Lila was like their favorite babysitter. And then, you know, 10 years plus later, my kids are now her kids' babysitters, right? My daughter Lucy babysits her boys. Or, you know, Lila and I, um, I officiated her wedding to her husband Daniel, or we've shared holidays together. If something good happens to my li- in my life, I'm sending Lila a text. So, it's, so it is this holistic picture that is so life-giving. I mean, it makes, and, it, you know, I think for me, Jackie, it, it, uh, the, the relationship, the friendship benefits the ministry, partnership for sure because there's a lot of trust um there's uh there's almost like a shorthand we don't have to we can communicate really effectively because we're good friends but then the other opposite is also true being in partnership together has given us the opportunity to build this friendship it reinforces our friendship so i love how reciprocal that is right the friendship and the partnership go hand in hand uh in my experience and it's just a wonder it's just a joy to behold you know, it's interesting that you say that because my husband, I started moving about 10 years ago into this idea of brother-sister relationships, which is the dominant metaphor in the New Testament. Yep. And I started thinking, I actually think it's the relationship that lasts into the new heavens and new earth. And so I thought, started thinking, well, shouldn't we start like learning how to live it out here as we yeah. walk into eternity since it's the relationship that lasts? And I actually think it's the relationship we see first in the Genesis passage also, but that's a different story. Um, And and, and so I started bringing in relationships um, into our marriage life, like, you know, friendships, female friendships that I had with women, many of them single, never married, you know, never had children kind of thing. And and, um, I invited my husband to be a brother to them, Mm. you know, and I invited them to come into our home and, and be my sister, but also be his sister. And they have built this beautiful relationship. My husband has like a tribe of female friends now that he goes and stays with when he's traveling to Dallas or wherever around the country. And, and it has made my, it actually is spiritually transformed my husband and who he is as a human. Forget about even ministry work, right? Like it's actually made him a better human because he has these relationships with the other gender. Um, so I would say it's even transformative in our spiritual life and then actually more helpful in our ministry life or work life also. Yeah, yeah that's good. So yep. um, you mentioned, though, as you were describing that and as I've described it, and I have taught on this often, and I, I always get the same response, and I, I'm sure that our listeners were feeling it when they heard you talk about your relationship yeah. with Lila. And that is this dread of fear about what about moral failure? What, sure. you know, like, and this is one of the barriers, correct? Um, uh-huh. To obtaining this holistic flourishing friendship. Speak a little yeah. bit to that. Sure. Yeah. It's legitimate, first of all. Right. So when I, almost always, when I present on this at a, in a training environment or a coaching environment, that's the first thing people want to talk about with yep. the friendships one is, yep. is about fear of what might happen. And it's legitimate. I mean, we, we all know stories. Every listener probably knows a story of someone in their networks or, or, you know, more broadly who have, have made bad choices. And 
have fallen. And I think so it's important to acknowledge that, right? This is not without fear. And so we should be move forward. I think we should move forward with courage, but also with some sort of realistic, um, you know, picture of what could happen. I think for me, part of the, um, part of the way through that a is to embrace the brothers and sisters paradigm. I really think if we get that, we take that out of the pages of the new Testament, dust it off and really put it to work and really start thinking of ourselves as brothers and sisters in Christ to talk about what that means, to analyze the implications, to think about how can we be good brothers and sisters? Like that will be helpful. The other thing that will be helpful is a chapter that comes later on, the contextualized boundaries chapter. I think that's smart to have those kinds of, of things. And then Jackie, I mean, this is where um, I think this is where I could be accused of being maybe a little bit naive. I just think we need to talk about this stuff. I do too. So is it going to be awkward? Absolutely awkward. Yes, it is awkward because we don't have muscles for having these kinds of conversations. But what I've, what I discovered when I was doing my research is the first couple of conversations, very awkward by number 10, number 20, number 30, conversations about like, how are we doing working together as women and men that by the 30th conversation way easier. Right. And what had happened over time, right. Is they normalized that conversation. So I think with regard to friendships, with regard to, to boundaries later on, with regard to theology, normalizing the conversations by pushing through the awkwardness to have them, I think will benefit us particularly over time. Yep. I couldn't agree more. And that was one of the things I brought to the church that I worked on staff. Cause again, I was determined. I'm like, wait a minute, partly because I had to, in order for me to be able to do my calling, right? Like we had got, we had to get, I had to get everybody comfortable with the fact that I was in a female body and a mostly male dominated staff, you know, and, and I wasn't going to hide my female body. No, don't get me wrong. I didn't walk into the staff meeting in a bikini, but I wasn't going to pretend that I was male. You know, I was totally female and we had to get over this. So we had to have these conversations and I kind of tend to be more of a prophetic voice. So I don't, I'm not as scared as other people. And so I would throw things out. Like I had a guy that worked on our staff and he was, he's handsome and he had this beautiful shirt on and it just made his gorgeous eyes just pop. And so I said to him, Hey Jason, I just want you to know that shirt looks fabulous on you. And if you could have felt the awkwardness, right? So I immediately said to him, no, no, Jason, I don't even want you to hesitate and think this could be awkward. I am telling you this as a sister in Christ, because you need to know that you live in a body and you look beautiful today. And there's nothing wrong with that. And there's nothing sexual here at all, period. Don't even, don't even think about it. (laughs) And I said that over and over again to the point where in our church, we had gotten to the point where we were actually as a staff living as brothers and sisters and people started having more and more of those conversations openly. And then we almost didn't have to have them anymore because it was a given, at least amongst those of us who had already been there for a while. If someone new came on, we had to indoctrinate them again into the brother-sister concept. But um, it just became normative. And I really saw the Holy Spirit blow through that church in gifting during that time frame. And I think it had to do with that we aligned ourselves with God's vision there. So it's it's a very powerful thing. So I I want to encourage people to really read this particular section of Rob's book, hire him to come talk at your organization, particularly about this aspect, but all of the book really. Um, All right, we got to move on because we're we're, we've got a ton more to talk about and I'm probably going to have to cut some of it and I hate that, but they're just having to buy your book. So um, you talk about... Let me get where I am. Okay. Chapter eight, you talk about, you say this, my research suggests that mixed gender ministry partnerships are more likely to flourish when the community culture in which they are situated exhibit an awareness of adverse gender dynamics, dynamics that particularly marginalize women. When communities develop a radar for such dynamics, they are able to proactively mitigate them and mixed gender ministry partnerships are more likely to flourish. Um, I would love to, you, you talk about, uh, the, in your research, how men addressed like this whole idea of adverse gender dynamics. What did, what did they say about that? Yeah. Well, I think the, the, the key, the key thing would be, are men aware of them or not? Right. So I think the awareness, it's a little bit of a companion to the self-awareness attribute in the first uh, domain, right? the inner life one, the self-awareness one, this is, a, this is that at a more macro level, communal level. So is the community, men in the community, women, 
are they aware of the dynamics underneath the surface that are subtle but potent and tend to marginalize women? And so that's the biggest key for the men was like, how aware are you that the playing field tilts in your favor, whether we're talking about sort of the big picture culture and society, or just even in a meeting (laughs) where you're more likely to be listened to and taken seriously and have your input received than the woman sitting next to you, right? So, so how aware are we of those things? And if we are aware, then we can mitigate that. We can do something to head that off ahead of time. And we can do the work of um, sort of interpreting or debriefing afterwards. And women saw, were very aware, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. So yes, men right. weren't, so, weren't as aware, and that's not a surprise, correct? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, um, so I'm going to, I want to talk about you. Um, talk to us a little bit about, well, actually, here's what I want to do. So you work a lot with Leanne. I never get her last name right. Zubinski. There you go. You now know uh-huh. why. And she and Amy wrote, and I don't know Amy's last name. I don't even know Amy's last I don't know Amy. Yeah, Amy Deal. Amy Deal? Okay, so, I think so, yeah. All right, so they wrote a book together about the research they did, and they uncovered 27 examples of unconscious gender bias, and you list them in your book, correct? Yes. And then is it my understanding, somebody told me the other day that Leanne's book is out. Yeah, she has a book out right now, but it's not about this. It's about, okay. um, yeah, it's about sort of a history of women in missions. Um, I, but uh, Leanne and Amy have an article out that details these things and they might be working on a book, I think, uh, around this as well. Okay. So there's 27 examples of unconscious gender bias. And I was going to ask you to kind of talk about one, but I think we're going to move on and I'll let um, the readers get your book and the listeners get your book and read what those 27 are. Cause those are the subtle things that cause us such problems, right? Um, That uh, create such insensitivity. And there's, I like what you say, these dynamics are subtle and sneaky and they will take a willful work to identify um, yeah. So I'll let them kind of work through that. I want to move to the third grouping, one, which, one, which you call intentional. Yeah, one, yeah. Sorry, one thing real quick on that. I, I think like a simple, practical way for people to work towards um, developing lenses to see these dynamics under the surface is to read Leanne and Amy's work and to have that like an ongoing checklist, right? Like, are we seeing any of these things happening? You know what I mean? So I think that it's not, this is not, Dare I say, this is not rocket science here. This is, this is a choice that an organization can make, that a community can make to really major on this and to say, what are we seeing here? And to create a category for that conversation. And, and I think it's that intentionality that will go a long way towards disempowering some of those dynamics. So, sorry, take me no, to the No, no, I love that. And I'm so glad you said that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to get that article and I'm going to post it on the Jackie Always Unplugged Facebook page. So um, you guys be looking for that there and they yep. can always maybe find you and kind of drag it out of you also, right? Always, yep. Okay. <laughs> All right, third grouping, intentional practices, which I thought was kind yeah. of a funny label since you give such yep. intentional practices to every attribute you gave. But um, I want to talk about abundant communication. Like, who could we please? You say communicating in a way that most people not only hear but are heard is a lot of work. Can I get an amen on that? See, I highlighted that one too for Steve when he gets home from Africa. He's in trouble. Um, you talk right. about the fact that, that abundant communication is not only uh, quantity, but also quality, that both of those things matter. What do you mean by quantity communication and quality communication? Yeah. So in the research, people told me stories of like uh, the quantity one would be uh, over communicating, right? So communicating communication saturating the partnership from beginning, middle, end, right? So there's like the initial conversation of like, how's this partnership going to go? How do we feel about this partnership? What do we need to be talking about? What do we need to be watching out for? And then during it's like, uh, what just happened there? Can we debrief that together? Um, how are we doing proactively? Can we, can we check in together? How's this partnership going? Right. So that's just sort of all the way through from beginning to end. The quality, the quality one, Jackie is more about what are we talking about? Are we are we do are we having the conversations we need to have in order for this partnership to flourish? So, are we talking about the things that are hard to talk about? Are we talking? Are we working through conflict? Are we engaging with the taboo topics that too often? I mean, are we talking about power? Are we talking about so? It's all of those kinds of things. So it's both levels of that quantity and quality that um, compose this abundant communication idea. And and. 
One of the barriers you mentioned is that overall, we kind of lack basic communication skills. And I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I, yeah. I think some of us know what they are, basic communication skills, but I'm not sure everybody has actually taught them. This idea of yeah. active listening, good eye contact, paraphrasing yeah. for understanding, right? Saying, um, saying something. You, you, you list a lot of really good things in your book about basic communications, like asking really good questions like Jesus did. You know, those yeah. are just simple things that um, we need reminding of. But you also talk about a barrier of just feeling clumsy or awkward, in communicating with the opposite gender. Like, what do you mean by that? Yeah. Well, first of all, I used to, I used to assume, I think that when I would hire uh, young ministers that they would know how to communicate. And I think it's a bad assumption. Increasingly, um, I think we've lost some capacity to have these sort of basic building block skills you're talking about. I think probably has something to do with the phone in our hands and the screens on the front of our faces. Right. But so we need to be working on that uh, with folks. In terms of the awkward piece, um, the story that's in my head or the image that's in my head is uh, when I was uh, a few years ago, my wife and I were visiting a church and we dropped our kids off at Sunday school. And any parent out there who's listening will know this experience where you drop them off at the new church and then you sort of loiter for a little bit just to make sure they're okay and everything's okay as the whatever the program gets started. And what I remember is the, the very first thing they said from the stage was, okay, boys, you go over there with Mr. So-and-so, and girls, you go over there with Mrs. So-and-so. And, -so. and um, the reason that, and I don't know, you know, maybe they came back together later on in the, in, during the program, or, or I don't know that for sure. But what, what that says to me, Jackie, is early on, we separate the genders, boys over here, girls over here. And we, we, what we're doing is we communicate that nary the two shall meet, right? That there is that, friendships, uh, healthy conversations, um, that's just not something we're going to do. And so we don't equip people to have those conversations. And so later in life, when they're working together, you know, on the greeting team or in a small group ministry or something, sure, they don't know how to, to have a conversation because they've never been trained to do that. And it goes way back, I think, in a lot of cases. And so that's where the awkwardness comes from for me. So you have to push through that. I think you have to have conversations. And like I was just saying, the first one's going to be rough. The 30th one will be better. Yeah. Right. And so I think you, you normalize that that way. And when we talk about communicating, I love your example because communication, much of communication, some would say between 73 to 90% is actually done in the body, through the body, like yeah. eye contact or eye rolling or expressions of the face or how you're holding yeah. your arms or your hands and all those things. So like even separating them physically, doesn't help, yeah. right? You're, you're like, you actually are embodied when you're communicating. And what do I do with this person who's got a body moving different than mine right now? You know, like that I didn't, that I'm not used to <laughs> seeing maneuver around me very often. So you're exactly yeah. right. We set ourselves up for that. And one of the other barriers you talk about is this pervasive idea that men and women communicate dramatically differently. And um, I think I sent this to you, but recently I had a woman, I mean, in the last month, text me this picture, this image of something that she had um, taken a picture of at a, at a breakout session she was attending at a Baptist seminary. And in it, um, this, this breakout session was titled Flourishing as Women Serving Alongside Men. And then it told the women that this is how they're to communicate. It was communication strategies, email and bullet points, not narrative. There's no crying in staff meeting. Speak in waffle squares, not spaghetti strings. I don't even know what that means. Realize interjections are really interruptions. Deborah Tanner would say not so. For women, interjections are actually a way for, interruptions are actually a way to connect rather than a yeah. power struggle. So use words, not body language. Listen more than you speak. This lady sends this to me. She goes, what is going on? And I, I, I often, you got to know, Rob, often as women are taught to talk like a man in order to yeah. be heard. Um, and yeah. it, it, this idea that man speak is better than woman speak. So what would you say to us women who are often instructed uh, when entering into mixed gender settings to talk like a man? Yeah, well, I think my, <laughs> well, a couple thoughts here. One would be, um, first of all, what does that even mean, like a man? So be like a man, talk like a man. But I think, I think when we say a term like that or a phrase like that, we reduce manhood to some sort of trope, right? Where it's like, mm -hmm. uh, it, and in the process, we 
deny the beautiful um, diversity of what manhood, masculinity can be, right? If you look in the Bible, you look at even just the life of Jesus, there's this wonderful diversity in what it means to be a man. And so I, I, I think just that if we can excise that expression out of our vocabulary, be like a man, be like a woman, because there's no one way to express that, right? I think we need That's to right. be a bigger view. The second thing I'd say is, um, and this gets to your question, Jackie, is it's just so harmful, I think, to say to someone, be different than who you are. Mm -hmm. Right. So to say to someone who you are is insufficient, be someone else, be like someone else. Um, I, I just, that, that feels so toxic to me. Right. So I think like, again, magic wand, if I'm on my soapbox and I can change something about the church, it would be that everybody, man or woman, can be who they uniquely are made to be, that the church would have a vision for saying, who's Jackie, who's Rob, and do all the things that we know to do, right? What's your Enneagram? What's your, what else? Strength finders, your Myers-Briggs, what's your spiritual <laughs> gift? How's the, how has the Lord wired you, right? And let's, let's understand that and then discern together in community ways to put who Jackie is, who Rob is, to work to advance the kingdom. I think that's a much more effective way to go about this rather than saying, men, you do these set of things over here. Women, you do this set of things over here. Right. So I think for me, what to your question of what would I say to women on this one? I just think be, be as you as you can be, yeah. you know, like yeah. <laughs> I like be the full you and we will all benefit from that. Yeah, I even think what's missing when we only have one side of way, one way in which we think communication can happen. There's no give and take. There's no, like, there's learning only from one side, right? You learn how to do what we think, how men communicate. You, you women learn how men communicate. What are men not learning? What, what aren't they giving? What, where's submission back and forth to one another? Where's the yeah. fullness that comes from actually learning from each other about like, hey, give and take, that doesn't work for me communication-wise. Well, this works better. Okay, you know, like this give and take where we actually have to enter into interpersonal relationship with each other and figure out what works for real good yeah. communication to happen at that staff meeting. Right? Yeah. Right? Okay, we need to, I think we probably need to just quickly go to, you, you talk a lot about the Billy Graham rule, um, and this yes. is in your third circle of interpersonal um, practices, and you talk, there's been so much conversation about the Billy Graham rule, yeah. so much more we still need to say, but you say instead of having that static rule um, where a woman can never ever be with a man alone in the universe, um, that instead we should develop what you call intentional, the intentional practice of contextualized boundaries. What do you yeah. mean by that? And then give us a quick summary, something that our learners can do to take away and implement today about how to develop contextualized boundaries. Sure. Yeah. So, so one of the, the themes that kept coming out of my research, right, was the unintended consequences of the Billy Graham rule, right? So the Billy Graham rule Sometimes I jokingly call it the 11th commandment. It really does set the pace <laughs> for how, you know, men operate in leadership across the world, right? Men never alone with a woman that, that, that was Billy Graham's role was he would never be alone that, with a woman that wasn't his wife. Right. And research surfaced all of these unintended consequences, Jackie, like whether we're talking about a woman who said to me, she was supervising men and she said, look, if I can't be in the same physical space as the person I'm supervising, I literally cannot do my job. That's one example. Or another woman who told me about a time that a man had said to her, hey, I practice the Billy Graham rule. And what that communicated to her was that she was some sort of a threat to him. Mm -hmm. Right. Just how toxic that was. Or, yep. And there's probably three or four other examples. And so the question is, how can we mitigate those those uh, unintended consequences of the Billy Graham rule? And the solution that came out in the research was boundaries aren't bad in and of themselves, but the idea that there is one boundary for all time based on the singular experience of one particular person is maybe not the most helpful way to go about this. So instead of having the Billy Graham rule govern all partnerships for all time, can we say, look, given who we are in our partnership, given who we each are, the journeys we're on, right? The self-awareness where we've achieved, um, the wholeness we've been working towards, Given the context in which our partnership is situated, the, the culture of it, given the, um, the, the ministry context in which we operate, what makes sense 
for us? What boundaries make sense for us? And then we decide together about that. Is that conversation going to be awkward? Yep, yes. probably so. <laughs> right? But we have that conversation anyway. We push through that. And, um, and then we share, we, we discern boundaries, and we share those with people that can hold us accountable yeah. and can walk alongside us, right? And I think that is the solution. Instead of this one boundary that's supremely restrictive for all time, we say, what works, what makes sense for us? And then let's live that out with integrity and support. And so, so in terms of like a next step, a practical next step, I think it's about having that conversation. I love that. You know, and I think, I think sometimes it's enough to say, hey, I'd like to have this conversation about boundaries in a couple of weeks. Could we reflect between now and then to be ready for that conversation, right? And there's some questions in my book that could be helpful. But anyway, there's my, there's my three-minute take on contextualized boundaries. All right. So speaking of book, thank you, Rob, yes. for all of that. That was, it was wonderful. Where can they get this yes. book? Because they need the rest of it, the 27 bias, those, those points of how you bring up that conversation. Where can they buy it? And how do they find you so that they can hire you yes. to come speak at their organization? to help produce flourishing partnerships. Thanks, Jackie. Yeah, so you can buy uh, my book on Amazon if that's your, your book buying method of choice. You can also go to InterVarsity Press, which is my publisher, ivpress.com, and then search for Together in Ministry, and you'll find it, and you can order it from IV Press, which would be great. If folks want to find me online, uh, the, probably the best place to do that is my website. Now, let me just clarify that this is forever in process. I want to set people's... <laughs> Whose website isn't? I low, Jackie. So it's drrobdixon.com. So D-R-R-O-B-D-I-X-O-N.com. And if folks want to reach out to me, my email is there. And if they want to sign up for my, um, I send out a, a monthly newsletter, they can sign up there as well. Excellent. Thank you, Rob. You are just a fabulous encouragement to women like me who minister. We are so, so grateful for you, brother. Oh, well, thank you. And I, I just appreciate you. You've been such a encouragement and you're opening doors on your podcast. And I just am so grateful for the work you do, Jackie. So thank you. It's great to be in partnership with you. All right. You have a good night. You too. Hey, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then hop on over to themarcellaproject.com and sign up for our email or check out some of our other resources. You can also find me on the Marcella Project Facebook page or on every other platform of social media as Jackie Reese, R-O-E-S-E. Have a great day.